Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. There are a number of different views about the millennium. We believe in the pre-tribulation, pre-rapture approach to eschatology. That, by the way, can be traced back to the first century. A man by the name of Albertus Peters wrote a three-volume book on the Millennial Kingdom, and he names about 15 early church fathers from the first century that held to chiliasm, which is the Greek word for thousand. In other words, they believed in a little, literal millennium. Long about uh, the third century, from Alexandria, Egypt, in, in origin, there began the approach to scripture that you could allegorize it. Well, the problem with that is, and very simple is this, is that words control the meaning. And if at your whim you can change the meaning of the words, when you come to Jerusalem, you might be talking about uh, Buenos Aires. You know, you can make it whatever you want it to be. And then long about the 12th century, there was a Catholic priest that came up with the idea of post-millennialism. That is that we are gradually going to prepare the world for the return and rule of Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at sundry times and divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, by whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. This word worlds is an interesting word because it, the Greek word means ages. We talk about God or Jesus Christ creating all things and usually we refer to that as the physical realm. Uh, the trees, the dirt, the ocean, the water, the stars, and so on. But in reality, this verse tells us that God is the creator of time. Uh, there are no clocks in heaven. Uh, God is outside of time. God created time. And he is the controller of time and the events that take place in time. My purpose tonight is to show, there are two things here, to show God's plan through the centuries regarding the millennium. Can we put the, the slide up there? The millennium was not something that was just hatched uh, in, the, uh, in Matthew 24 or in the book of Revelation. Secondly, I want to destroy any doubt about the rapture not taking place. 
been 2,000 years. If the Lord ascended into heaven in uh, uh, 30 AD, then it's 1,990 years since he ascended from the Mount of Olives. And Peter talks about the fact that some people are willingly ignorant when they say, oh, where is the promise of his coming? So I wanted to spell that ignorance. I don't think any of you believe that, but you may come across some people that, that think that. In 1 Kings 6, 1, we have an interesting verse that allows us to, to date with a high degree of accuracy several things. In 1 Kings 6, 1, we learn that the start of Solomon's temple began in the fourth, uh, Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign. Now, that is considered to be a 966 because his reign started in 970. And from that, a number of rather um, accurate dates can be built all the way back to the birth of Abraham. Now, doing this is another subject, uh, doing the detail of this is another subject in itself, and that's not what I'm interested in doing. But because of this verse in, in 1 Kings 6.1, we can date with uh, fairly accurate um, certainty that Abraham was born in 2166 B.C. Now, God appeared to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. He, Hebrew says he picked up and left not knowing where he was going, and he ended up in Haran, which is, up, which is north, up in, uh, which would be up in what is today Lebanon. Apparently he stayed there until his father died. God spoke to him again, and at 75 years old, God spoke to him in Genesis 12:4. Uh, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. So if we subtract 75 from 2166, God spoke to Abraham when he was 75 years old and 2090. And at that time, he made a covenant with Abraham. Now, how many of you have entered into a covenant? Okay. So, uh, all of you paid cash for your house? Or you went to the bank and you said, uh, loan me some money to buy a car? And they said, sure. And you didn't have to sign anything? If you've borrowed money from anybody, you have entered into an, a, coven, a covenant, which is simply an agreement. You've agreed to pay the money back. Now, I would like to borrow money that they said, you don't have to pay it back, but I haven't found that place yet. Ben, have you found it yet? He hasn't either. In Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Now, class, what land is that? 
Canaan, which is modern day Israel, which is also called what? Palestine. And by the way, there's no such thing as Palestinians. The Palestinians are only Jordanians that were, that were left when Israel um, finally got their independence in 1948, but that's another story. So God promised Abraham and his descendants the land of Palestine. Now, I don't have maps here to show you, but, but the land that God promised Israel and Abraham has never been completely occupied, and it goes way up to the Euphrates River. But again, that's another, another, uh, another uh, series of lessons in itself. The Bible often comments on itself. In Hebrews chapter 16, we read these words. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the heirs of promise being Abraham and his descendant and the children of Israel, the immutability of his constant. What does immutability mean? Immutability means that it cannot be changed. God was showing Abraham and his descendants, the fact that his promise to Abraham was absolutely, totally, completely unchangeable. Confer he confirmed it, that is the, the covenant or the promise, by an oath that by two immutable things, two things that cannot change, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now, there's a difference between saying that God cannot lie and saying that God uh, does not lie. God has no capacity to lie. So when he made the promise to Abraham, it was, it was enough for God to have said, my word stands because I cannot lie. But God did something more than that. He, said, he, he confirmed it with an oath. And Hebrews talks about the fact that uh, it, it, a person is called to swear by somebody greater than themselves. Uh, going to court, do you swear to tell the truth? God could not swear by anybody greater than himself. He says that it's impossible for God to lie, and therefore we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay upon the hope that's set before us. Now, Paul is talking to the children of Israel, to Israelites here, to Jews, and he's telling them of the certainty of, the, of them receiving the promise that God gave to Abraham. Now, at the time that he made this statement, there was no such uh, country of Israel. It had been wiped out, wiped off the face of the earth by the Babylonians. And a little bit later, the, uh, in 70 AD, the, the Romans would come and virtually level the city of Jerusalem and destroy it. 
But, Paul, but the writer of Hebrews says, you are certain to have the land that God has given you and the promises because God has sworn it by himself. He didn't need to swear it at all because his, his, his word, he cannot lie, and because of his immutability, he doesn't change. Now we're going to drop down to the Palestinian covenant here. We know from 1 Kings 6.1 that the Exodus was 480 years, or that the, the start of Solomon's temple was 480 years after Solomon started building, wait a minute, getting turned around. The Exodus took place 480 years before Solomon started building the temple. Add 480 years to 966, and we find the, the date of the Exodus in 1446 B.C. And you say, well, why, why have you got 1406 up there? In Deuteronomy chapter 1, I think it's verse, verse 3 or so. Yeah, it is verse 3. Moses says that in the 40th year, in the 40th, the 11th month of the 40th year, that the book of Deuteronomy was, was written. The addresses in Deuteronomy are in the last month before Israel goes into Canaan. Well, if it's 40 years after uh, 1446, that puts us to 1406 B.C. Now, if we went to uh, Deuteronomy 29.1, you will find that it says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Horeb is the general area in which Mount Sinai was located. So in, in uh, Deuteronomy 29, you have the conditions that God lays out for Israel for their life in the land of, of Canaan. There are a series of blessings in that passage, and going through them is another study in itself. But after you go through the blessings, then you have a number of different curses and punishments for disobedience. This is called the Palestinian Covenant, and it is a restating to the generation at that time that God's promises of the land to Abraham was still intact, and they were going to inherit it. But they had to obey the law. You get over in, into uh, Jeremiah, and you find Jeremiah prophesying seven years of captivity, you get into Lamentations, and you find that the punishments that Jeremiah speaks about in the book of Lamentations mirror the same punishments that are at the uh, end of the Palestinian covenant for disobedience. And, of course, the last punishment was dispersion among the nations, and, of course, that happened. But that was 600, the Palestinian covenant was 685 years after God's promise to Abraham as he was leaving or about to leave Haran. 
Now let's drop down to David. David reigned from about 1010 to 970 B.C. Again, we can figure this out because of 1 Kings 6.1. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, we are told that David was at rest. In other words, he was no longer, he had conquered just about everybody, wasn't having any problems. He was able to sit down, as it were, and put his feet up on the footstool. Uh, I don't know if David did that, but he was taking it, taking it easy. And David sent a message to Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet came back in 2 Samuel 16 and 17. And here's what God said through Nathan. And thine house and thy kingdom. What does he mean by house here? Pardon? Lineage. Lineage. His, his, what's the house of Windsor? It's the English, it's a line of kings in the, in the line of Windsor, uh, kings and queens in the line of, of Windsor, house of Windsor. It's the dynasty. So he says, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. And as you, if you read in the, the section that follows, you will find that David is absolutely overwhelmed with what Nathan has told him. So, in effect, about a thousand years after God gave the promise to Abraham and to the nation of Israel that they would have the land of Canaan and has reiterated it 685 years later in, in uh, the Palestinian covenant. Now about a thousand years later, and I, and I put a question mark behind it because I can't get any closer than about the middle of, uh, of David's reign. A thousand years later, he says, There's go I'm going to appoint a king that is going to rule Israel forever. So that says that the nation of Israel is going to exist and exist and keep on existing. And, there's going, and I'm going to appoint a person to rule that king, that kingdom. And David is absolutely overwhelmed. Now let's go about 300 years later, a little over 300 years later, to Isaiah's prophecy, or 1,360 years after God promised the, uh, Canaan to Abraham. Isaiah's prophecy took place about 931, 32, at the time when the Assyrians, not Syrians, the Assyrians, came into the northern kingdom and wiped it off the face of the earth. The, the northern kingdom, remember the, the uh, nation of Israel split after Solomon died. Uh, Rehoboam was going to tax the people more and 
Jeroboam came and the 10 tribes says, uh, uh, we don't like high taxes, we're going to uh, set up our own kingdom. And so from about 930 B.C. until about 732 or so B.C., there, was, there were two Jewish nations, but the Assyrians came and wiped it out. And this prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 was probably given during the reign of Ahaz, who was, who was not a very nice king. In fact, uh, if you study the, the, the history of Israel at this time, in about eight years, Israel's mighty army just dissolved. And Ahaz was facing a, an invasion from uh, an alliance of, of um, Israel and, and Syria. And they wanted to overthrow the Davidic line and, and establish their own puppet. And God, through Isaiah, said, it ain't going to happen. But this is the time when God gives this prophecy to Isaiah regarding his promise to Abraham, repeated to the nation, the Palestinian covenant, and then given to David for a, a king to rule the land. And, and you know these verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah is, is telling the nation of Israel that his appointed descendant is going through, and this is 300 years, more than 300 years, after Nathan told this to, uh, to David. Now let's jump over to, um, oh, by the way, can anybody remember how Isaiah 53 starts? Someone look up Isaiah, we've got time. Look up Isaiah 53, 1. This is the passage that deals with the servant of Jehovah, who we understand to be the Lord Jesus Christ. What is, how does Isaiah 53.1 say? Any, anybody read it? Okay, keep going. Dry ground. Okay. Who hath believed our report? is quoted in John chapter 12. And it's, re, it's, it's reported, it, it's recorded there to show that even though Jesus Christ did so many miracles, yet people were not believing in him. And it says in John chapter 12, I think it's about verse 38, he says, though he did so many miracles, 
the people didn't believe him, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, who hath believed our report? And the, and the implied answer is, very few. In spite of all the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, how many of you have ever uh, heard someone say that they went to a, a Bible-believing church and they got hurt by somebody in the church? Anybody ever have people? Yeah. Let me ask a question. What person received the worst treatment from religious people in all the history of the world? Hmm? Not the, not the Jews. Jesus. Can you imagine a judge saying, I find no fault in this man. And the crowd, the mob, operating out of democracy, crucify him, crucify him. Nobody has ever been maligned more by religious people than the Lord Jesus Christ. On top of that, He's crucified in place of a murderer, Barabbas. So nobody can say, I was hurt terribly by a church more than anybody else. The Lord Jesus Christ was hurt more than anybody else. Okay, let's go down to Zechariah's prophecy, which takes place 1,570 years later, after the Abrahamic covenant. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet, which means he's after the exile. Remember, Israel was taken into Babylon for 70 years. Uh, Isaiah predicted that uh, a man by the name of Cyrus would order the rebuilding of the temple and the city, and that took place uh, more than 150 years after he, uh, after he made the, the uh, prophecy. Zechariah was, along with Haggai, was instrumental in getting the second temple built. I'm going to put a question mark by his date because I can't be exactly sure when he made this prophecy and when he wrote his book, but, but we're in the ballpark with about 5, 520 B.C., the reason I have question marks behind it is because I can't be as, as accurate with them as I could the, the dates at the top. So Zechariah makes a prophecy about the reign of Christ. In Zechariah 14.4 we read, And his feet shall stand, his refers to Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Lord in capitals in the Old Testament refers to Jehovah. So, so he's talking about Jehovah. Jehovah's feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. Now, why is that significant? Where did Jesus ascend into heaven? Where did he ascend from? 
on Mount of Olives. Does, now, it could be argued that this is a, an anthropomorphism, that is, a, a feature of a man that's ascribed to God. Just like we read in the Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord, and so on. But who is ascending so that his feet, does Jehovah have feet? Why? Well, we're dealing with the Trinity here. Dennis, who has feet? Exactly. And it's interesting that he comes to the Mount of Olives. Because at the, at the ascension, remember the men appeared and said, this same Jesus that you've seen him go is going to come in like manner. So I, I, I believe that this is, number one, Jesus Christ, and number two, he's being identified, another, another one of the passages that identifies Jesus Christ with Jehovah. Same being, two different personalities. And he goes on to say that, that the Mount of Olives is going to split part to the north and part to the south. And then in verse 9, Zechariah 14, 9, And the Lord shall be king over the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. So here the Lord that descends sets up a worldwide kingdom. Now again, this is 1,570 years after God has promised the land to Abraham. It's still in effect. God is progressively, little by little, over time, revealing his plans for the millennium. Now let's jump forward to, God, to Gabriel's message to Mary. 2,091 years after God gave the promise to Abraham and a thousand years after he gave the Davidic covenant to David. Look at what Gabriel says to him. In Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That was a promise in the Davidic covenant made a thousand years before. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end as he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah. Now there's one more that I want to mention. About 50 years later, Paul, and, and I mentioned this when I preached on, on the subject, Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia trying to persuade the Jews that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. Now, what better way to prove that 
than to show that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. What kind of a person is it going to take to reign over Israel forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Got to be an eternal person. David at this point is dead. In Acts, Acts chapter 2 at the Pentecost, Peter says, his bones are still with us. He's, he corrupted, but Jesus did not corrupt. He did not decay. The proof that Jesus was the Messiah was that he rose from the dead and he is able, he is able to rule over Israel as Isaiah said. Paul, uh, Luke writes in Luke in Acts 13:35, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it also is also written in the second Psalm. This uh, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Doesn't sound like a, a, a message of resurrection, but the word begotten means to be to be um, it means to be raised up. And as concerning that he raised my, uh, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return corruption. He saith on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. This is a quote from Isaiah 55, 3. First of all, did David deserve to have a lasting kingdom with an eternal relative. This promise to David was made before he committed his three great sins. Sin number one, adultery with Bathsheba. Sin number two, he murdered her husband, Uriah. What's the third sin, class? Gary? He killed, he, he numbered the people. And that brought about a judgment upon Israel whereby 70,000 people lost their lives. David's sins were an occasion for God to show his mercy, not only to David, but to Israel, and even to us, because we are inheritors of the promises along with God's people Israel in the church. Now, what does this mean? Jesus Christ, as the creator, is the creator not only of the ages, of the, of the physical realm, but also of the ages. Our world is a mess. Uh, our country is a moral and political mess. 
the longer I live, the more I become convinced that sinful men cannot govern themselves. Uh, and if you know anything at all about history, you know that there have been a lot of very wicked, wicked men that have ruled. But God's plan for history is that someday his son is going to take control of things. And there's an interesting verse in Isaiah uh, toward the end. I think it's in chapter 60, 64. It talks about those that hated the Jews will come bowing on their knees to them. Can you imagine the, the descendants of Hezbollah and, and uh, uh, Arafat and the Ayatollahs coming and bowing down to the Jews? That's going to take place in the millennium. We are certain that the Lord's reign will take place on this earth. Now, before that, we're going to be raptured out of here. The 2,000 years, there are 2,000 years, as we've seen, from the covenant that God gave to Abraham until the last mention of it by Paul in Antioch of Syria, about 2,000 years. Fast forward, if the Lord ascended into heaven in the year 30, now the date of his birth is, is argued about. I think most people think he was born about uh, 3 or 4 B.C., but we'll go with 3 B.C. He was 30 years old when his ministry began. He ministers for about three, three and a half years. So roughly about 30 A.D., we have his ascension into heaven. Before he goes to, back to heaven, in Matthew 24, he, said, he says to the disciples who are looking across the Kidron Valley up at the temple, and they're really looking at the glories of Herod's, Herod's temple. And Jesus says, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. If it took place in 30, and, and I can't be exact about this, I, I don't know. It was in 70 AD that the Romans came in and just obliterated the temple in Jerusalem. And since that time, there's been no more sacrifices. There's no more high priest. And amazingly enough, the Jews think that they're going to, there are people who think that they're going to keep the law. It was not possible to keep the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 or so. What this means is that it's something that Peter addresses in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 5. He says this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things considered uh, continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this, they willingly are ignorant. That willing ignorance. 
That's like the same kind of ignorance that denies the creator in Romans chapter 1, of suppressing the truth. For this they are willingly, uh, willingly ignorant, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. Now, uh, Jack was, Jack, you were talking about the Big Bang before we talked. There were a number of Big Bangs. Relating things to the Big Bang is only kicking the can down the road, and it doesn't tell you what caused the bang. In other words, creation was instant. Uh, nobody addresses the question as to where did the bang come from. Uh, have, has anybody heard an explanation of where the bang came from? Uh, so far as I know, out of nothing, nothing can come. Now, I'm pretty old, and maybe... Uh, maybe there's some of you that are more informed than I am, but, but I don't know how something can come out of nothing. And neither do I know of anybody that's ever seen living things come out of non-living things. It just don't happen. That's not very good English. For this they are willing and ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now, there's one other thing here, that man's sin, David, the sinfulness of the human race, is not preventing or deterring God from carrying out this plan, which has been unfolding for now over 4,000 over 4, years. Now, we've talked about the coming of the Lord. The rapture is before that. Hasn't happened yet. We're still here. But we, as much as we look forward to the reign of Christ, when we will reign with him, we better be prepared for the coming of the Lord when he takes us up without any notice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you've laid out your plan for the coming reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over thousands of years. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.